When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Listener discretion is advised, as this content is intended for adult audiences only. Hidden Signal Q-Code presents The Golden Record When he gave me the diagnosis, it was raining outside, just like it had been raining for the last 57 days. I stood there in the lab, arms wrapped around my middle as if that would keep me from coming apart, but my insides were knotting themselves into a hopeless tangle. I stared at the raindrops, trailing down the grimy window panes, leaving sad yellowish streaks in their wake. Through the streaks, I could just make out the spiral towers that had once upon a time made our city the wonder of the world. Dr. Newsom leaned into my field of vision. Grace? If the situation hadn't been so devastating, I would have laughed at the way the hologram projections of graphs and charts and trajectories danced over his white lab coat like a child scribbles. But I couldn't laugh. I couldn't even cry, which would have been more appropriate, or scream for that matter. I was numb all over, inside and out. I didn't want to break the news to you this way, he said, spreading his wrinkled hands in an apology. Dr. Newsom, I blurted, my voice clipped. <sighs> Our planet is on its deathbed and you're worried about how you say it? Well, he said, we're still human, after all. He turned off the projector and the gentle whir of the machine was suddenly silenced. The paint box colors died with it, leaving us stranded in shades of ash and rain. For a moment, I felt the suffocating swirl of all those billions of lives, trapped in this apocalyptic deluge and carried like soap suds inexorably towards some invisible cosmic drain of extinction. But the next moment, my awareness collapsed down to focus on a single point. 
I clenched my arms around my middle, protectively but hopelessly, desperately aware that it was futile. I could no more save the tiny invisible seed of a life already growing inside me than I could save myself or anyone else. It was absurd, really. A cruel joke of the universe that after years of failed black market fertility treatments, the last one would take just in time for our world to end. I wanted to laugh or cry or scream, but I could only stare. Dr. Newsom's thinning hair and hollow eyes and the dirty streaks of raindrops on the windowpane. The thing I want to know is, I said, my voice catching. The thing I want to know is what you think I, of all people, am supposed to do about this. We received instructions, he said. Everything's been completed according to the specifications. Received instructions? From whom? I asked. He didn't answer. Instead, he fiddled with the projector for a moment, then resurrected it with another flip of a switch. A world of swirling blue and green filled the wall. White clouds wrapped the globe like filaments of cotton candy. What's that? I asked. Pre-Diluvian Earth? He barked a short laugh and I shuddered. No, Grace. This will be our new world. We call it New Eden. How original. He didn't let my sarcasm faze him. It has all the markers of sustaining life. Liquid water. Oxygen. We've been promised that it's only a temporary refuge. A place to wait until it's time for us to return. I don't understand. Word came to the Oracle before the rain started, Grace. We were given a window for preparations to construct the ship to send an advanced team of androids to prepare. Stop. Stop. He did, to his credit. He looked even sillier now, with that ridiculous scribble of childish hope, coloring his white hair green and his lab coat blue. But before I could laugh at him, He blew out his breath, puffing out his hollow cheeks. A deep breath in, and then, by the time you get there, with the children, New Eden should be, will be, fully habitable. I groped behind me for a chair, a stool, a table, anything to catch me before I collapsed. What do you mean, the children? From somewhere very far away, I heard him continue to speak, his jaws flapping. You see now, Grace, why we called you. No. 
You can't refuse this mission, not when can't refuse. Our world is drowning, and you can save, I'm not, soldier, scientist, specialist, significant survivor. He stopped talking. Why? I choked. A frown appeared between his scraggly eyebrows. Because you can save... No. No. Why me? I gathered everything into my two hands and clenched them tight. We faced off there in the lab as the raindrops ticked down the final hours of our world. And then Dr. Newsom smiled. A real, genuine smile. Rich and warm. Ah, he said. I suppose that is the question. But he didn't answer me. And deep down, I knew he couldn't. I was part of the package, part of the specs issued by the Oracle. There was no why with the Oracle. There was only what. And perhaps, very occasionally, how. The silence filled the space between us, as slowly and steadily as the water rising outside the window. I will be alone all that time, I said, pivoting from why to how. I tightened my arms around my abdomen again. I can't do this alone. This. I didn't really mean the journey. Though that terrified me too. Of course, our cosmographers had been traveling the stars for decades, constructing complex maps that read more like a musical score of harmonies and proportions than a geograph with its elevations and terrain markers. But our people were never colonizers, only observers, content to journey out but never to stay. So yes, I was afraid of this journey, of what it would mean to depart from our ways and lay claim to another world. It felt like the creep of an unforgivable corruption. But most personally, most viscerally, I was afraid of childbirth. I knew that I had all the wisdom of centuries buried somewhere inside me. But our women had lost the ability to bear their own children a generation ago. You won't be alone, Dr. Newsom said. Kelly will be with you. I'm sure the name Kelly started as an acronym for something, but Dr. Newsom never bothered to explain what it meant. What he did bother to explain was that Kelly was the latest and last iteration of an android. She had been programmed to be practically perfect in every way. Not just a worker droid, but a companion. But the truth of the matter is that no matter how flawless her design might be, her smile has nothing behind it, and her capable hands are always cold 
I still can't look at her for too long without becoming queasy. Because the not-quite-human lines of her face never change. I suppose that's because she has no heart. On the day we departed for New Eden, I stood in the hangar bay with Kelly, watching the techs in cleanroom suits run their final checks on the cryo cases filled with the DNA of every manner of living thing, the birds of the air, the fishes of the sea, and the beasts that moved over the land. Others guided the amber-colored artificial wombs with the tiny babies suspended inside them like little seeds, up the ramp and into the cold, metal belly of the ship. They had christened her Voyager 10. I shivered as I looked at the word etched in the hole. Something about the name made me feel as though we were being launched into the void of the cosmos with no hope of recall. We were like a stone skipped along the surface of the universe only to sink into the depths at the end. Drown, just like everyone and everything else. I shivered again. Kelly turned her head to look at me, those not-quite-human, unreal blue eyes scanning my vitals. I'm not cold, I told her. Of course I was lying because she could never understand. There's no sensor, no matter how advanced, no matter how finely tuned, that could measure the kind of chill that leeches from your soul into your veins. Kelly turned away and followed the cryocases on board the ship. As soon as she was gone, Dr. Newsom approached. He clasped my hands in both of his own. All will be well, he said. He managed to smile, but I could see the tears behind his eyes. Everything has been prepared for you. I said nothing, because what was there to say? I was stepping over the edge into the void, bound for a waste station at the edge of the known cosmos. And by the time I reached it, everything I had left behind would be swallowed up by the waters. I pulled my hands from his and walked slowly up the ramp into the belly of the ship. The faster we travel, the more slowly everything seems to unfold. I don't know if it's the stillness and the silence or the overwhelming consciousness of solitude, but I know that I have almost completely lost track of time. There are markers, of course, if I remember to watch them. The plants in the garden haven't forgotten how to grow. They pay no mind to the strangeness of everything. The artificial gravity makes sure that their genes have no idea that they aren't on Earth. And so, they do what they should. They erupt from their seeds, but how slowly it seems to take root to stretch their leaves for the artificial sunlight and finally to wither and die. When I was a girl, I used to pull weeds out of the cracks between the flagstones in our courtyard 
My mother would rotate her pots brimming with roses so that they could catch the sun on their faces. She used to tell me that sunshine and water were the two keys to life. Do reclaimed water and artificial sunlight count, I wonder? Yesterday, I think it was yesterday, but I lose track of the time so easily. I stood barefoot in the rows of green sprouts, my toes gripping the thin layer of soil and my face tilted to the ceiling. I closed my eyes and tried to remember the feeling of the breeze on my face and the sound as it whispered through the pines. I tried to remember the warmth of the sunlight filling me from the outside in. But the warmth of the lights feel hollow. And there's no sound in the room but the constant gentle whirring of the machines that keep us alive. If it weren't for the children, I think... I would have laid down in the garden ever so many life cycles ago and died. I desperately need sunshine and water. But all I have are copies, elegantly engineered fakes, like Kelly. She found me there in the garden. One glance at my bare feet and then a sustained stare at my face, reading my vitals. She's always reading me. You and the wombs will be full term in three months. What does that even mean? Month? There's no moon here to measure by. We measure by other things now. I use the word you understand, and her not-quite-human eyes bored into me again. You are having a girl. Ten boys and ten girls, I said. And then, because I had no one else to ask, I said, Kelly, are they enough? Kelly tilted her head. It's the only almost human gesture she seems to have been programmed with. Enough for what, Grace? To, to start over. It is enough to continue the species. As I walk among the wombs later, I run my hands over their smooth roundness. They are meant to mimic the roundness of my own body, except that they are rigid and unforgiving, and I can't feel the baby's kick, but I can watch them suck their thumbs, and I wonder about that word enough. The plants in the garden on deck three are fruitful and multiply. That seems to be enough for them. But we humans? We aren't a math problem. Are we? What do you think? I ask my daughter. I like to believe that she can hear me. Kelly says she can, so I try to remember to speak my thoughts aloud. If our species is nothing but a math problem, I tell her, then Kelly would have been enough. Kelly could have managed the genetic multiplication table of ten and ten, but according to the wisdom of the oracle, Kelly wasn't enough. On that day, was it months ago? Years ago? When Dr. Newsom summoned me to the lab and told me that our world was ending, he said, You see, Grace, 
Wabi called you. But I don't see, I tell my daughter. I still don't see why it had to be me. As I drift off to sleep, I remind myself that I should be grateful. I'm alive, and the ten boys and ten girls in the wombs are alive, and everyone and everything else on Earth is dead. I read a myth once about a wise woman who foolishly asked the god for immortality, and the god granted her wish, but she soon realized her mistake. Immortality is worth nothing if you are damned to spend it alone. But I am not alone, I whisper to the darkness. I wish that saying it would make it feel true. That night, I dream about the babies and their names. And when the artificial sunrise wakes me up and I shuffle through my morning routine, I wonder how I will explain all of this to them. The longer we travel, the more I feel adrift. I struggle to find the words to describe what I see out the viewports. I knew so many words, so many languages on earth, and now none of them seem to be quite right. Even Kelly knows that. She has already jumped to some other means of understanding and translates it poorly into my impoverished words. I read in the Chronicles once how our first cosmographers realized that our geographs wouldn't work for mapping the stars. They knew they needed something more complex, more flexible, more expansive. We needed new maps. And now that we are journeying out into the stars to stay, we need new words. I sit down at my desk under the viewport, my pen poised above my precious paper journal, longing to write, but I don't have the words yet. So I slip out of my cabin and take the lift up to deck three. For a long time... I sit among the green and growing things, soaking up the fake sunshine. I think about making up my own words, my own language. I could teach it to Kelly, and she could help me teach it to the children. But I know deep down that words only have meaning when they are grounded, and the children won't know anything but this capsule with its artificial gravity and its atmospheric regulators and lights that respond to touch and Kelly's calculations, how do I explain? How do I explain what feet are, what they really are if they can't run barefoot in the grass? How do I tell them what hair is, what it really is, if there is no breeze to catch it and fling it in their faces while they laugh? How do I tell them what human is? If our world and everything in it is gone, will we be something else now that we are adrift among the stars? I think about the cryo cases in the hold, filled with all manner of Earth's living things. Is it really so easy as packing them up on one side of the galaxy and unpacking them on the other? The soul chill returns, I know. It isn't. I feel in every fiber of my being that it can't be as simple as that. 
When I ask Kelly about it, she corrects me. They aren't meant to be unpacked until the return to Earth. When is that supposed to be? I ask. If Kelly had been programmed to shrug, I think she would have. They designed a signal. When the waters recede and life is possible again, it will call us back. Something about the way she says us makes me shiver. She says us, but she doesn't mean me. The waters will recede because nature always finds its way back to equilibrium, but she knows, and I know, that that future exists without me in it. Except that is, for one small thing. These children are the sons and daughters of grace. Kelly is here for calculations and the genetic mathematics of ten and ten, but her hands are always cold and her eyes have nothing behind them. She can't teach the children who they are, but I can. I will. And that's when it dawns on me. Dr. Newsom never answered me that day when I asked him why I was needed for this mission. The Oracle never told them why I was required, only that I was required. But now, at last, I think I understand. I used to think it was because the Oracle thought I had somehow escaped the wrath of the God that for some reason I was allowed to be a living remnant of a time when women could carry their infants in their own wombs and could birth them into the world in paroxysms of pain and soul-rending joy. And maybe there is something about this experience that will help me find the words when the time comes. But I was chosen for this mission for another reason. They chose me. The Poet Laureate of Atlantis. Because I... I'm a womb of stories, an anthology of countless lives. I haven't lived countless experiences I have never had. I am here on the Voyager 10 to make sure that this tiny remnant of humanity launched on the breath of a dying world's last prayer into an endless sea of darkness and light does not forget its origin and its end. My name is Grace, and I am the Golden Record. The Golden Record is narrated by Mara Schuster Lefkowitz. Written by Shannon Valenzuela. Directed by Lauren Sinelli. Executive produced by Rob Herding, Sandra Yi Ling, and Shin Yin Hi Yu. Producers Lauren Sinelli and Sarah Ma. Original score and composition by Darren Johnson. Audio engineering and editing by Sarah Ma. This podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. Hidden Signal is a Q-Code production. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Q-Code Media Inc.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.